Welcome to episode 59 of the History of Skipton podcast. My name is Ian Lockwood, the author of the book, The History of Skipton. And in the last episode, I related how housing in Skipton was so bad that one national newspaper branded the town as having the world's worst slums. That was in 1926, and the article coincided with the first wave of government-financed house-building as politicians struggled to keep their promise from the First World War of building homes fit for heroes. Armed with government grants, by 1928, 300 new houses had been built in Skipton, although the council said it was only keeping pace with new demand. Virtually no impact had been made upon the existing stock of what was deemed substandard housing. The Skipton building programme began when the council compulsory purchased from Lord Hothfield 16 acres on the southern edge of the town for the construction of 158 houses. It was to become known as Burnside. A tribunal fixed the price of the land at £3,000, less than half what Lord Hothfield wanted. The total cost of the Burnside scheme was put at a huge £140,000 to be raised from government grants and loans. The first sods were cut in November of that year, but the Herald warned that it would not relieve housing problems in Skipton. By 1921, the council announced its plans for the first 18 houses on Burnside. Ten were called scullery homes, and eight, slightly larger, were called parlour homes. And the council fixed the weekly rent for these at eight shillings and one penny, that's 41 pence, for a scullery home, and nine shillings and ten pence, that's 49 pence, for the larger parlour homes. But some thought this was too high, and was more expensive than private rented homes. The council announced that first refusal on the 18 new homes would be offered to ex-soldiers and sailors and lived up to its promises. 16 of the 18 went to ex-servicemen and the remaining two to widows of servicemen. They moved in in May 1922 and 16 of the new householders signed a letter to the council thanking them for their new homes. They provided excellent accommodation and conveniences and the signatories feel that these, coupled with a delightful situation, will mean much to the health, happiness and comfort of the tenants. The tenants had to abide by a list of council conditions, such as no poultry or pigeons to be kept, although a move to restrict washing days was voted out by the councillors. For the rest of the decade, the Burnside estate took shape and was a popular place for families to move into. Almost all were council-owned, and the councillors were determined to make sure that the estate was run to their standards. Three members of the housing committee made an unannounced inspection and found that while most gardens were well-tended and picturesque, 15 were overgrown and were a blot on the estate. 
The tenants were told that unless their gardens were brought up to scratch, a notice to quit would follow. By the 1930s, the council was looking for new housing sites, and in May 1931, Skipton Urban District Council entered a contract to build 60 houses on Short Bank Road, above the swimming baths, to the east of the town. They were mainly three-bedroom properties with a bathroom upstairs. And in 1975, these houses were modernised and the bathroom moved upstairs. Private builders followed the council and more and more fields have been turned into houses off Short Bank Road right until today, with more to follow, it seems. Skipton's Medical Officer of Health, Dr Scatterty, had criticised the insanitary Victorian housing in the town centre and the council was taking active steps to force their demolition. So it was that in 1933, the council applied for permission from the courts to demolish 39 houses lived in by 122 people in a range of locations across the town described as unfit for human habitation. George Aldersley, summarised the work of the council in a talk delivered to the pupils at Skipton Girls High School in 1935 as part of a programme of extracurricular talks. Aldersley was a builder himself and had been chairman of the council housing committee since 1919. He revealed that between 1914 and 1922, not a single house was built in the town. But in the subsequent 12 years, no less than 898 went up, of which 516 were council-funded and owned. Despite this, there was still a waiting list of 431. Most of these new houses, 254, had gone up on the Burnside estate, with 158 on Shortbank Road and 104 on Broughton Road as old, cramped houses in the town's centres, courts and passageways were condemned. And as a result of this heavy building programme, the average number of residents in each dwelling had fallen. With Burnside and Shortbank in place, the council turned its attention to the Horse Close area to alleviate the town's continuing chronic housing shortage. In early 1939, the council purchased land and approved plans for 62 houses on the site just below the area used for target practice by soldiers in training during World War I. Before a brick had been laid, the outbreak of World War II postponed all plans, but they were dusted off when the hostilities ended and in January 1946, 12 German prisoners of war were put to work laying out roads for a building programme said to be for 300 houses. The first 50 of these new homes were to be called Airy Homes, named after the designer Sir Edwin Airy. And these were prefabricated buildings of large sections of precast concrete to overcome a shortage of skilled labour and imported materials. The Airy Houses went up swiftly, Progress on permanent houses was less impressive. And by now, the council waiting list had 600 people on it. While most of those moving in had left homes with shared toilet facilities 
and neither hot water nor electricity. The airy houses were notoriously cold and difficult to heat. They were unpopular. But the development of the Horse Close and Greatwood Estate continued apace. In May 1948, the council purchased a further 10 acres, a month later a further 21 acres, and in May 1949 and January 1951, a further 75 acres were purchased. By April 1949, the 100th council house, built since the war in Skipton, was open. Privatisation of council houses is usually linked to Margaret Thatcher's government of the 1980s, but the principle was long established, although tenants had no right to buy, which is what Mrs Thatcher brought in. Rather, any sale was entirely at the council's discretion, and in 1955, Skipton Council decided to offer tenants the opportunity to buy their house. The price was fixed at 25 years' rent for all houses built prior to 1945, and for those built after 1945, what it called the all-in cost, i.e. the cost of building and fitting out each individual home. With an agreement reached with Skipton Building Society to provide no-deposit loans, the scheme was a big success. Two weeks after being announced, the council had already agreed to the sale of 91 of its housing stock. This represents almost 10% of council housing. Just a year later, a further 235 houses were sold off and the council closed its scheme. 1955 was a significant milestone when the keys to the Skipton's 100th council house built, number 81 Western Road, were handed over to Mr and Mrs E. F. Wilkinson, whose house in Star Inn Yard was being demolished as part of the council's slum clearance programme. By the mid-1950s, Greatwood and Horse Close were housing a significant part of the town's population, but had few facilities. In 1956, an appeal was launched for £5,000 to build a church on North Parade. It opened two years later as an outreach for Christ Church and was called the Church of the Good Shepherd. But the building was on marshy ground and suffered from damp so that in 1968 the decision was taken to close the church. This church was pulled down and the army cadet hut now stands on its site. Boggy ground has been recovered and forms a car park to the next door community centre. There were also plans in the 1950s to build tennis courts, gardens, a bowling green and shops, but they never materialised apart from a single shop. In 1963, a pub opened on Greatwood Avenue, but this was closed in the 1990s and private homes put in its place. One facility which did survive, indeed thrive, was Greatwood School, which opened in 1953 and has set consistently high standards ever since. Between 1990 and 1999, those unpopular area homes 
were either demolished or the outer shell demolished and a new external wall built, leaving the internal walls intact, making them look totally new. A government grant of £3 million funded this programme. We can gauge a measure of how much the town was changing through the eyes of former Craven pioneer editor, academic and author of the first history of Skipton, W.H. Dawson. In 1955, and then aged 85 and living in Oxfordshire, he penned an article for the Craven Herald after a week's visit to his hometown. He called for the compulsory purchase of godforsaken cottages using an Act of Parliament if necessary. They should then be knocked down and replaced with miniature parks with paths, ornamental bushes, playgrounds and flowerbeds. Dawson wrote... From both the architectural and social standpoint, the greatest blot on the fair fame of Skipton undoubtedly continues to be the existence of the old and decrepit ginnels, chiefly occupied by the poorest part of the population. All should be demolished without compunction, decent, civilised and cheap accommodation having been provided for the present occupants. The tranquil, select and romantic sheep town is a dream of the past and its place has been taken by a populace exceptionally enterprising and throbbing with energy and ambition. It also was heralding a massive slum clearance programme, which coincided with the major house-building programmes. Land off Newmarket Street, between the High Street and the Canal, bore the brunt of this demolition. The fruits of this can be seen in the large spaces and sometimes more modern homes, built in the gaps. Although not all houses face the wreckers' ball. For example, Victoria Street and Brookside survive, while all around them was flattened. However, the process was not without its problems. Technically, the houses cleared were all designated as unfit for human habitation, but the term created considerable resentment for those living there, leaving one councillor, Molly Mitchell, to say that there was no suggestion of the homes being dirty or criticism of those living there. The houses simply lacked some basic amenities, she said. The residents were less convinced. And some of these residents of condemned houses did not always go willingly. Phyllis Crone tried to mobilise opposition. She had bought her home in Albert Street and a little over a year later it was slated for demolition with compensation well below what she had paid. Demanding full and fair compensation, Mrs Crone said, This injustice has been going on for years. If anyone who is ordered to demolish their serviceable property in future refuses to budge until they are guaranteed full compensation, then the, both the local authority and the Ministry of Housing will be powerless and a just solution to this problem will have been found. It is not a fair exchange to be turned out of one's house and bundled into a council house. Many of these people cannot afford to pay council house rents. One property in particular summed up the predicament. Devonshire House. A large, elegant, three-storey detached house on Albert Street, dating from some time before 1832. A campaign to save it from demolition 
was launched by the wife of the celebrated Dales archaeologist Arthur Raystrick, who outlined her views in an open letter. Skipton cannot afford to have its character further submerged by indiscriminate improvements and demolitions, she wrote. She suggested that rather than knocking down Devonshire House to use as a car park or a green space, it should be rehabilitated and converted into flats, possibly for older people, or used as a home for the Craven Museum. Support came from the Skipton Sir Optimists in the form of a unanimous resolution, while the owner, N. Myers, started a petition to save the house, which quickly gathered several hundred signatures. A public inquiry was held into demolition orders for Albert Street. After the council outlined its case, objectors accused the council of wanting to grab land on the cheap and use it for car parking. One of those objecting was Harry Wicks, a 72-year-old who had bought 14 Albert Street for £450 the previous year as his retirement home. He claimed he could not afford to pay council house rents. The spokesman for the objectors was a Mr Scott. It was very strange, he said, that in clearance orders, the council said it should not consider the health, feelings and financial position of either the tenants or the owners. Narrow streets in Skipton were not the same as narrow streets in a grimy industrial city. Clearly, said Mr Scott, the council had an ulterior motive. But the council won its case, and demolition took place of the houses between the High Street and the Canal, including Devonshire House, in the summer of 1956. Although it wasn't without some drama. Mrs Crone refused to obey a court order to quit and hung a swastika flag outside her home, an indication of the council's position, she claimed. When notice was served on her, she refused to budge, shouting, Go ahead and be damned. We are all heartily sick of orders, threats and pompous letters from the town hall. However, when police turned up a few days later to enforce eviction, Mrs Crone and her 17-year-old disabled daughter were found unconscious in the house and were taken to hospital, the police refusing to comment on how they came to be unconscious. Mrs Crone eventually moved to Steeton, where she opened a shop selling outsized shoes. This period, 1956 to 1966, transformed much of the town centre off the high street into what we recognise today. The Newmarket Street clearances opened up a new street, Pettit Grove, for old people's homes, and exposed St Andrew's Church to view. Between the canal and the high street, the narrow terraces were cleared, although some veg vestiges remained, many to become the holiday cottages of the 21st century. Well, so far we've talked about the council as the main builder of houses in the 20th century. The private sector was also extending the boundaries of the town beyond its historic and cramped core. Two private estates sprang up in the interwar years. An article in the Craven Herald about what was described as the first big building estate in Skipton 
appeared in October 1935. A total of 64 private houses were to be built on what was termed the Rakeswood Estate. The land was owned by governors of Hermistead School, who imposed a condition that they had a veto over the style of the new houses. The seven-acre site would be built by J. Morfitt and Sons building firm and covered the military camp and then prisoner of war camp during the First World War, so many of the services, such as sewage and gas, were in place. The other private housing estate was Regents off Otley Road, started in 1934. The main thoroughfare, Prince's Drive, was to be designed as the main route driving straight through to the High Street and over the canal via a new bridge and onto Gargrave Road. The unusual width of this road was to provide a future dual carriageway, if necessary. But the outbreak of war halted this expansion. However, the region's estate was renewed in the 1950s with the northern part of the estate and its hugely different style of housing. After the war came the third large-scale private development which provided an alternative for the residents from the slum clearances. An inquiry was held in 1959 into a proposal to build on 30 acres to extend Hers Road, a proposal fiercely resisted by the existing residents of the very small Hers Road. Council surveyor Ken Robinson said that since the Second World War, 682 council houses had been built in the town, all of them on Greatwood. Only 94 houses had been erected by private enterprise in the same period, and the Hers Road development, plus the extension of the Regent's estate, would fit in with the town's projected rising population. These houses were built in the 1960s, and a further phase in the 1970s. The 21st century has seen a surge in the amount of land released for housing. Moorview Way was extended yet again for the addition of the Elsie Croft development, and another change has been the conversion of large properties into flats. Victoria Mill, Dewhurst Mill, and the old Skipton Building Society headquarters in Providence Place being the most obvious examples. In 2016, a massive flood barrier was built across part of Skipton Golf Club to hold back a once-in-a-hundred-years flood. On the western side of the town on the road to Ilkley, a similar, if less sizeable, wall was put up, and all this was to prevent the new housing development and the town from flooding. The engineering is a response to devastating floods which hit Skipton in the 20th century. Although sheer volume of water was not the whole story. Skipton had suffered flooding before. The first severe one that's recorded occurring in 1866 when the towpath between Ellerbeck and Springs Canal was destroyed and there was considerable local flooding of houses. Perhaps the most dramatic was on June the 5th, 1908, when a cloudburst above Empsey Moor lasted for two hours. Empsey 
was badly affected. But in Skipton, there were astonishing scenes of a turbulent torrent racing through Skipton Woods, carrying debris down. The newspapers reported two hours sufficed to transform an idyllic sylvan scene into a veritable valley of destruction. The round dam gave way, the towpath separating Ellerbeck from Springs Canal was broken and water was sent cascading into the canal. Downstream, that caused it to overflow at Millbridge, the Dockyard, Brewery Lane, Union Square and Broughton Road. As well as flooding houses, Dewhurst's mill was underwater, production harmed and thousands of visitors came to the town to witness the carnage. At least no one was injured. The same cannot be said of a great flood 71 years later, again in the month of June. This time, in 1979, 34 mm of rain fell on Skipton, turning the channels on Rumbles Moor into torrents, which sent water racing down Shortbank Road and overwhelming Wilderness Beck along Newmarket Street. However, it soon became clear that the situation had been greatly aggravated by the waste materials left along the course of the beck, which blocked culverts and swamped the town. The flood killed one 89-year-old woman, Jane Barraclough, trapped in her home at 19 Brookside, and several other pensioners had to be rescued. Local councillor Robert Hesseltine was praised for his prompt actions as he carried another elderly woman, Maggie Heslop, who was up to her armpits in water at her home at 36 Pettit Grove, to safety. He linked up with two other local men, Mick Jownsens and Ian Barraclough, no relation to the deceased. They and the police borrowed a boat from Brooks Smith undertakers nearby and ferried other elderly residents to safety. The flood led to the junction of Keithley Road and Swadford Street, being flooded to a depth of about three feet, and a block of properties, including a shop on Otley Road, was ultimately demolished after a retaining wall alongside the beck was washed away. Soon after, Yorkshire Water, in the shape of its director of rivers, Guy Rookin, was blaming the practice of dumping garden rubbish in the beck and also inadequate culverts for the tragedy. He told a meeting of Yorkshire Water's Land Drainage Committee that the rainfall would probably have created a flood, but that rubbish thrown into the beck made the situation much worse. The Craven Herald did not have to work hard to find plenty of supporting evidence. Barbara Gomersall, of the shop which was destroyed by the flood, said that local people had been dumping garden waste in the beck for years. It was these branches which had blocked the culverts, causing the flood to back up and then spill out onto Watley Road and into Newmarket Street and Pettit Grove. The owner of a strip of land between the Beck and Otley Road, Alan Atkinson, said locals had been dumping waste in the Beck for years and he'd given up trying to clear it. The Herald said it found in the Beck that very day cut down willow trees, a heavy fireplace, scrap metal, tyres wires and roofing sheet. The culverts had not been maintained for years. Only 12 months later, 
in June 1980. The town was again flooded, and this time, Swadford Street was the main area affected. The Beck here had just been culverted for the new co-op store, although this new culvert was not blamed for the damage. Recrimination started soon after, with the council blamed for doing little about the culvert obstructions elsewhere in the town since the previous flood. Since these two severe floods, a regular inspection of work has ensured that Skipton's culverts are kept clear. And then, in 2013, the government announced it was contributing £7.6 million towards the cost of a flood alleviation scheme which would create two upstream water storage areas that would limit the flow of Ellerbeck and Wildernessbeck into the town. It was claimed that 378 residential properties and at least 165 businesses would be under threat without it. The result was the two major construction projects at the golf club and to the east of the town. Hopefully, there'll be no need to report on serious flooding issues in Skipton in the future. Thank you for listening. Thank you.